Hey, it's Benjamin. Welcome to People Place Power. Today we're excited to bring you another activist chat, which is our series where we have candid conversations with activists we admire about why they do what they do. This week, I talked with Finn Lau, who's organizing for democracy in Hong Kong. Finn, thank you so much for joining us on People Place Power. Can you just introduce yourself? So my name is Finn Lau, so I'm one of the Hong Kong activists in exile wounded under the Hong Kong National Security Law. So the Hong Kong National Security Law is a draconian law that uh, it would uh, try to uh, prosecute anyone who want to collaborate with the international community, uh, including those uh, working with the NGOs on human rights, democracy, uh, autonomy, and other basic civil liberties. And the reason why I got wounded under the law was that I have been so active uh, to devote myself, my time to Hong Kong pro-democracy movements since 2019. And before 2019, you weren't devoting your time towards Hong Kong democracy movements. You were a surveyor, right? Uh, correct. Uh, so but before 2019, uh, I would say I I was just a, a so-called ordinary pro-democracy uh, supporters in Hong Kong. So I was not a student leader. I was not a, uh, any event or rally organizer before 2019. Mm. And can you tell me a bit about what what happened politically in 2019 but also like what about that what was happening you know made you feel like you couldn't just stand by and, and keep working as a normal hong konger that you had to get involved so in june 2019 there was uh, the introduction of the extradition bill in hong kong which is a draculian bill because uh, it will we moved the last firewall between the legal system of hong kong and china because in Hong Kong, we got, uh, we were supposed to be protected by, by an international, uh, treaty called the Sino-British Joint Declaration under which, uh, Hong Kongers should enjoy at least 50 years of basic human rights, democracy, autonomy, civil liberties, and so on. But then just after 20 years, then we lost almost everything. We no longer don't have any rule of law. That's why, uh, many Hong Kongers, uh, started to, to be waking up to try to stand against uh, the Beijing regime. Mm-hmm. And that's why we got uh, more than 1 million Hong Kongers marching on the 9th of June in 2019. Okay, so the Hong Kong legislature withdrew the extradition law that would have allowed criminal suspects to be extradited to mainland China. But then where does the national security law, which expands Beijing's power in Hong Kong, come in? Then after after fighting for, for a year, uh, unfortunately... Uh, the Beijing government decided to bypass the Hong Kong Legislative Council to promulgate the Draculian National Security Law, uh, try to stifle uh, all the voices in Hong Kong. So, uh, so in short, uh, we we got a victory uh, in the battle against the extradition bill, but then we suffered a heavy loss uh, in the uh, battle against the National Security Law because they simply bypassed all the procedures uh, in Hong Kong. Right. Can you just tell me a bit more about what was it like to transition from your life where you were working in Singapore and in the UK as a normal Hong Konger, as a surveyor, to to being an activist? Like, what was that transition like for you? 
Yeah, so there was a magic moment uh, back in uh, 2019. So it was a 9th of June 2019. At that time, I was one of the participants uh, of a random rally supporting uh, Hong Kong, showing the solidarity uh, with the Hong Kongers. Uh-huh. On that day, uh, there should be around 2,000 participants, including myself, uh, in London. But then I just realized uh, because there were so many of us, is there anything that we could do uh, other than uh, holding rally mm. because I think uh, at maximum we could may, we may be able to hold a uh, weekly rally but is this uh, really a effective means to uh, to fight against uh, the extradition bill is there something more we could do on my way back home I just think that I could try to leverage uh, again uh, using the foreign citizenships of all the pro-Beijing legislators and those uh, Hong Kong government officials try to leverage. Because uh, ironically, uh, all uh, pro-Beijing lawmakers and uh, Hong Kong government senior officials, they got uh, some kind of foreign citizenships like in the UK, Australia, Canada, US, and uh, many democratic countries. Mm. So uh, their usual plan is to, uh, once they are done with Hong Kong, with their dirty work, then they will retire and live in these uh, democratic countries for the rest of their life. Mm. While Hong Kongers need to uh, stay in Hong Kong to suffer with their you know, legislation or all kinds of draconian public policies. Mm-hmm. So uh, at that time, I want to leverage using these kind of things to to uh to deflect some pro Beijing lawmakers, perhaps they would uh vote against the bill, yeah, on the second read. So that was my plan. And then I tried to articulate my ideas on if online forum, the most prominent online forum in Hong Kong. Suddenly my post went viral and I got uh, over two thousand replies within twenty four hours. And that is the beginning of my activism. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that, that idea that you came up with after this protest that, you know, had a few thousand people, that's the idea of Lam Chow, right? Yeah. Can you just describe to me what that is? And like, how did you get the, the idea to leverage your power in that way? So uh, Lam Chow is a Cantonese slang. It could be literally translated as uh, if we burn, you burn with us. So this is uh, this echo with the uh, famous attack line from uh, from the movie uh, The Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically, uh, we stand for Hong Kongers, and you stand for the Beijing government or all those Hong Kong government officials who were keen to destroy Hong Kong. So this is the essence of our Lam Cha. So it it shows our determination. We are willing to sacrifice our life such uh, so as to save Hong Kong. Mm. So that is the essence of our Lam Cha. Right. And this is uh, one of the uh, key ideologies that has steered the pro-democracy movement since 2019. And so since 2019, there's been a lot of protests and also a lot of violence in retaliation from the pro-Beijing Hong Kong government. Um, And a lot of people and a lot of your friends have been put in jail as a result of those protests. Now you're living in exile in London and can you just tell me about that decision-making process for you? Hmm. So, uh, although the, when, when the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement broke out in 2019, I was already in London. But then I did go back to Hong Kong uh, in December 2019 uh, because I want to witness uh, what is happening in Hong Kong with my own eyes. I want to participate in the protest uh, in person. Uh, and then on the first day of uh, 2020, I was arrested uh, along with a few hundred others in Hong Kong. 
And at that time, I was detained there for 40 hours. And then uh, because uh, because the Hong Kong police, they didn't figure out my identity uh, at that time. So I was so fortunate that uh, I was released uh, after being detained uh, for uh, 50 hours. Yeah. So uh, I, and then I just uh, immediately uh, changed my mind and bought a new ticket to the UK. And since then, you've been living outside of Hong Kong. And I'm wondering, living outside of Hong Kong, are you safe from the Hong Kong government's persecution of protesters? The story didn't end on that day because uh, three months after going back to the UK, I got a warning uh, from some uh, frontline protesters in Hong Kong. They they told me that uh, there has a, has been a bounty, a one hundred thousand pounds bounty placed on my life. So they asked me to be very cautious whether there is anyone uh, following me or anyone who want to have uh, some kind of a physical assault on me. I have been very cautious after receiving uh, such a warning. Uh, unfortunately, after uh, getting such a warning, say maybe after getting those warnings for two months, then I was ambushed by uh, three unknown street gangs. They didn't say anything racist. Uh, they were in hoodies. Uh, so they suddenly uh, attacked me, keep kicking and punching my head. And then uh, there was a moment I... I I thought uh, I lost my right eye because it was so painful. I uh, fall to the floor and then I couldn't see anything. My hand was uh, getting more and more wet and the air was soaked with blood, the smell of blood. And then there was a moment I asked myself, uh, is that the end of my life? Uh, if this if it is the end of my life, then I would gladly accept it because uh, I, I didn't regret to defend my life to help Hong Kong. That's uh, what I told myself when I was on the on the street. Uh, luckily, I didn't get internal bleeding, but uh, I got severe concussion and severe PTSD, and I couldn't fall asleep uh, for more than a month. And it was a very, very, um, very tough period to me. And then I was uh, in severe depression, and this is one of the reasons. Uh, yeah, and then the the story didn't end there. So two months after getting attacked, uh, my identity was exposed by a number of pro Beijing newspapers in Hong Kong, uh-huh. uh, and they reported that uh, I have become a so-called uh, fugitive uh, under the national security law, uh, being mm. wanted by the Beijing government and the Hong Kong government, because they said uh, I collude uh, with foreign forces, etc., having this kind of ridiculous claim. And then two months after uh, being exposed by the Beijing government, I decided to go public, fully public. Yeah, so so year 2020 has been a life-changing year to me. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's when you went fully public with your identity. Uh, yes, correct. And when you went public with your identity, you announced like a series of different priorities for your future work to liberate Hong Kong. And I'm curious about a couple of those priorities. One of them was to perfect the doctrine of Lam Chao and to lobby the international community against the Chinese Communist Party. And then another one was to join forces with international allies to push for the right of national self-determination as a basic human right. International solidarity is central to both of those. So what does what does international solidarity look like for you? Maybe between 1980s and 2019, there is a policy called engagement policy. So there has been a wishful thinking that uh, by engaging with the Chinese Communist Party, then perhaps uh, there will be democracy uh, in China. 
So that was the wishful thinking. Uh, but then after uh, after 2019, the world suddenly realized that this is not uh, feasible at all. Uh, also after that, uh, we could see that uh, there has been more and more solidarity with Hong Kongers, and there are more and more lifeboat schemes uh, being introduced in different countries like the UK. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, we need to think about how to uh, counterattack, how to counter the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. So if, if we want to free Hong Kong, then somehow uh, we need to, uh, to defeat the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Right. What's your philosophy of of collaboration? Like, how do you think about collaborating with organizations like the UNPO, the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, or collaborating with other governments like the UK government? Yeah. How do you think about, you know, those ways of collaborating uh, with with the common goal of of liberty for Hong Kong? We, of course, we would uh, collaborate with other minorities uh, under oppression like the Tibetans and the Uyghurs. So uh, on the June 12th, uh, three, four months ago, uh, yeah, uh, I organized a global campaign, which is called uh, Kobe Water uh, Global Hong Kong Campaign. Uh, on that day, uh, we got uh, more than 50 cities and more than 20 countries try to join forces to hold a uh, support Hong Kong campaign and protest. And then uh, in terms of other dimension, I would say that we would like to collaborate with other people like Thailand, Myanmar, this kind of uh, protesters, because, you know, there has been a, a term uh, called uh, the multi-alliance, which stands for the, the spiritual alliance between the Hong Kongers, uh, uh, Thailand uh, protesters, uh, Myanmar, Burmese protesters, uh, Taiwanese and, and other Asian countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to, you know, kind of in the bigger picture, you mentioned that you hope that, you know, you could work towards freeing Hong Kong from the Chinese Communist Party. What do you think the outlook for Hong Kong is? Um, I would say the realistic time frame would be 15 years. Yeah, so 10 years is a, is a goal for myself, but 15 years is the realistic time frame. Okay. Uh, in terms of the, the timeline or the blueprint, uh, I would say uh, in Hong Kong, everything would get uh, worse and worse because uh, in 2020, we have witnessed the disbanding of more than 50 civil society organizations or NGOs in Hong Kong. We also witnessed the shutdown of the last pro-democracy newspaper mm. uh, and media in Hong Kong, uh, largest media in Hong Kong called Apple Daily. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we only got some kind of uh, online media, pro-democracy online media, try to survive in Hong Kong. So I would say uh, the worst uh, is yet to come. And then on the other hand, uh, in the international scene, I would say uh, I'm a bit optimistic. Uh, because uh, we could see that uh, there are more and more uh, tough China policy and different countries starting to try to reduce the dependency on a single market in the Far East. Uh-huh. And this is a good sign. And I hope that uh, as, a, as a Hong Kong activist, I could uh, push for sanctions against the Chinese Communist Party right. because this, it would be the key to lead to the collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. So back uh, maybe 40 years ago, uh, everyone may be saying that uh, the collapse of the USSR is just a dream. It's uh, impossible. But then we knew uh, the USSR eventually collapsed. So I believe if the world, if the international community could adopt uh, a correct strategy, 
then there is just a matter of time that the Chinese Communist Party would collapse. And that's my hope. Once the Chinese Communist Party partially or completely collapsed, then Tibet, uh, the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, then we could see hope. And I bet that this could happen within 15 years. I mean, that's great that you feel like there's hope for Hong Kong. I feel like in most of the narratives I've heard in the media, it the situation in Hong Kong is portrayed as being hopeless and that, you know, there's no hope for Hong Kong to regain its autonomy. What do you say to people who say that there isn't hope or that this is a losing battle? Uh, so some people may challenge that the Hong Kong is, is uh, fighting a losing battle. It seems so, yeah. Maybe Hong Kong is Hong Kong is, uh, looks like we are fighting a losing battle, but I think it doesn't matter because the reason why we need to resist uh, the CCP is that uh, after all, Hong Kong is our home country, our home city, our hometown, and this is important enough for our, for us to keep fighting. Hmm. Right. You know, there's a lot of risks in this work, being an activist for Hong Kong. What keeps you going every day? Mm, this is a this is a big question. I have to admit because uh, there are so many factors that keep driving me to fight for Hong Kong. The first thing is that uh, Hong Kong is my is my hometown, my home city, my home country. As a Hong Kong girl who who were not sure by Hong Kong for more than twenty years, mm-hmm. I think I need to devote myself to save my my home country. That's this the first reason and the fundamental reason. And then the second reason is that uh, there are so many people, so many pro-democracy uh, Hong Kongers in Hong Kong have been arrested and then put into jail, including my my dear friends. As a Hong Konger who enjoy relative freedom uh, in the UK, I need to do what they can't do in Hong Kong. That's why I keep fighting. If you want to support Finn's work for human rights in Hong Kong, you can donate to his personal Ko-Fi, which we've linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and if this is your first time tuning in, don't forget to check out our main episodes, which drop every other Monday and take deep dives into activists and their stories. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review People Place Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. See you next week.